timing is everything. And this is an optimum period for Putin to do something in the Ukraine. It is the week of November 29th, and welcome to episode 108 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Carmen Medina, NSI advisory board member and former deputy director of intelligence at the Central Intelligence Agency, Rob Walker, visiting NSI fellow and executive director of the Homeland Security Experts Group, Matthew Hyman, a senior fellow at NSI and the chairman of the Cyber and Privacy Working Group of the Regulatory Transparency Project, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. All right. I hope everyone had a terrific Thanksgiving and got to eat plenty of turkey. I personally had turkey gumbo in New Orleans, which was uh, about as good as it sounds. This week, we're going to talk about Russia threatening Ukraine and hypersonic weapons. So two weeks ago, the Biden administration sounded a warning that the buildup of Russian troops near Ukraine could mean invasion. We're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 to 100,000 troops and uh, related heavy equipment. Since then, the NATO secretary general has also sounded the alarm. And this weekend, the Ukrainian prime minister asked NATO for naval and air power assets to help in repelling an anticipated Russian invasion. Rob, we saw a similar story about a Russian military buildup in the spring. What's different this time? Well, Lester, uh, I, I did some uh, good old-fashioned map reconnaissance on this uh, when I started looking into it, because I'd, I'd honestly forgotten about the geography of the area. Uh, so there's a few things that are different. Um, first and foremost is that this current deployment is much further north than the previous one. Uh, the previous one back in um, April, May, was ostensibly tied to preparations for some September exercises it was much further south, down around Crimea, Donbass region, which we all know Russia has been meddling in for quite some time now. This one is much more on a, a um, latitudinal parallel with um, Minsk, uh, Belarus. And for other, you know, tangential news stories in this, Belarus and its neighbors, uh, Lithuania and Poland, are going through a major um, dispute right now over Middle Eastern and African migrants. Uh, Belarus has essentially said, come, come all, and uh, pass on through and go into, into, into the EU, the Schengen region. And, if, you know, and once you get into Lithuania and, uh, and Poland, you're in the free travel area of Europe. So uh, you know, I, I see this uh, one, you know, Putin is, uh, he's from other Russia, but he's the father of all chaos. I see this as him uh, continuing to sow that chaos within the EU. Um, you know, pay attention to what one hand is doing while the other one does something else. So I'm curious what we should be looking for, maybe further south in Ukraine or on the uh, Russian-Ukraine border. Uh, you know, just just a few references. It's a, it's only about 160 miles from Kiev, uh, from their current location of the, the deployment we're talking about. But it's on a north-south axis, and there's not a whole lot of roads in that area that go north-south. The main avenues of approach in that space, military-focused, um, would be east-west. So if if they are to move anywhere, I'd imagine it would be west into Belarus to support uh, to support that country and, and its auto autocratic leader in his effort to continue to sow chaos in the EU. So Matthew, Rob already brought in uh, the Belarus-Poland question and this uh, very cynical use of uh, immigration as a destabilizing uh, element in Russia's um, 
kind of approach to the rest of Europe. What's the larger strategy for Vladimir Putin here? What is he, what is he seeking to accomplish with these Loki-like behaviors in the region? I think it's, it's multifold. Uh, you know, he's a tyrant and he's paranoid. And so I think that drives a lot of his behavior. And I think for him, uh, he views international relations as a zero-sum game. So to the extent that he can make uh, U.S. allies uh, in Europe uncomfortable, that makes the U.S. uncomfortable. Uh, To the extent that he can project power into the Black Sea region, uh, that gives him greater comfort. It gives him some elbow room in his mind. I, I think he's also playing to two audiences, or at least two. Uh, the first is the international audience, obviously. Um, but I think he's also playing to a domestic audience because the Putin uh, regime has always been about this almost macho-like strength and to always being doing something to show that Russia deserves a seat at the table. And, you know, he craved that meeting with President Biden in Geneva um, earlier this year. And I suspect he would crave another meeting. If for some reason uh, the U.S. or the Europeans were to have some sort of a conference to discuss this uh, heightened tension, I think Putin would very much want a photo op sitting with Biden at the table, demonstrating to his domestic audience that Russia is still a superpower. It still matters in the world. And these are the things he does to demonstrate that. Carmen, what's your read on on Putin's actions, particularly vis-a-vis Ukraine? Is there a, a discernible goal here for him? And how does that relate to U.S. interests in Ukraine. Well, one thing I would say is uh, in in looking at this and what Russia or Putin is thinking that in international conflict, just like in uh, many other things in life, timing is everything. And this is an optimum period for Putin to do something in the Ukraine. So let's let's go through all the factors. One, Germany is in transition. And Angela Merkel has been the backbone of Europe on certainly on issues like this for, you know, however long she's been in power, 20 years, something like that. So you're going to be with a tenuous, uncertain German government. Two, it's winter. So Russian leverage against uh, Europe is at its maximum because of natural gas supplies. Those are kind of the reasons why you would want to do something now. Uh, And then there are other uh, factors that are more like agitation. So, for example, Ukrainian President Zelensky is a hardliner. You know, he's kind of a really bad option for Russia. And uh, second, President Trump is no longer President Trump. And that means that the U.S. is no longer going to be uh, supporting or or turning a blind eye to whatever Putin is doing. And it's going to be like that for a while, you know, so he may feel like he's got nothing to lose. Right. He's got someone in power in the U.S. who's against him. And I think that. I, I, Putin, like any good former intelligence officer, smells blood in the water, and he knows that uh, President Biden is weak right now, and that there's a particular uh, advantage to making that weakness more apparent, particularly in the global environment. And I sometimes I ask myself whether or not there's the possibility that the Russia and China could collude to uh, present. Uh, twin crises to the U.S. at a very inopportune time. And I'm obviously referring to Taiwan. So I think that 
this is a very difficult period for the U.S. to navigate because when you get right down to it, Russia cares about Ukraine much more than the U.S. or Western Europe does. And the Russian sort of historical argument that Ukraine is part of Russia, inexorably so, has a lot of validity and, and complete validity in Russia itself. So I, I, I see that this is an issue that Putin right now thinks the timing is opportune and uh, it might not be a bad time to sort of force Biden to act in a way that will not be advantageous to U.S. interests. So I think that's a great segue into what I wanted to ask all three of you about, which is this Walter Russell Mead column in the Wall Street Journal from a week or two ago in which he, uh, and and I have to admit, I'm a total fan of Mead's, but uh, so I'm a little biased, but he, he lays out a, a, tell me if it's a plausible scenario that uh, Moscow, Beijing, and even Tehran are, are seeing what you're seeing, Carmen, which is that there may be blood in the water, there's a weak, there's weakness in Washington, and that while they, these three actors, disagree on a whole bunch of things, they all agree that a strong Washington is bad for their interests, and that there is a kind of de facto concert of, well, he didn't call it this, but concert of evil or concert of bad acts that are working against the U.S. Or, or is that is that a legit possibility, or are we being a little too Washington-centric if we think that's true? Rob, what do you think? Yeah, I, Lester, I think it's a, a valid point, and, and Carmen, thanks for, you know, sort of validating my sleight of hand approach. Um, I, I think, you know, you, you bring in the third leg of that of that evil triad, um, Iran. And I'm reminded that recently the one of the senior Iranian uh, military officers restated uh, Iran's desire to wipe Israel off the face of the map. So now we have two, two uh, genocidal regimes in that triad, um, and any one of them can distract the global common from, uh, you know, from the other two at one point or another. So it, it's, it's absolutely viable. Um, and, and just, you know, leaning on Iran a little bit more, um, you know, we've seen a volatility in recent oil markets and don't, you know, don't forget the fact that they've got the keys to the uh, Strait of Hormuz and can shut that thing down anytime they choose and throw us into further chaos with our, uh, with the global market. So it's not out of the realm of the possible. Matthew. I agree with a lot of what Rob said. I, I I don't think there's anything so much as formal as sort of a game plan that they're all sort of huddling and say, okay, I'm going to do A and you're going to do B and then you do C. But I think they're all savvy enough to take advantage of the situations as they present themselves. And they all have the ability to impose costs on the U.S. within the regions. Um, you know, as Rob points out, Iran can, you know, make the Middle East go haywire even further more than it is today. Russia has its realm of influence in Eastern Europe and other places, and obviously it projects power in other ways. And then China can do all kinds of things. So I think it would only be in each of their respective interests to take advantage of whatever step the other one is taking. I don't think uh, it's necessarily premeditated, but I think they're all savvy enough to recognize that the U.S. is in a weakened position geopolitically right now. Biden is not strong. He's not strong domestically. He hasn't uh, projected strength abroad. And this is what happens when the U.S. appears to be weak, when its allies appear to be diffident. Um, You know, one side takes advantage of the other. So um, I don't think it's premeditated, but I do think they are sort of taking cues from each other and and pushing as far as they think they each can respectively. Carmen, do you think 
we risk not seeing what's really going on if we as Americans see thinking too much about the impact on us or believing that this is all related to President Biden and whatever chaos is going on in Washington. Is that is that a well, good lens to look at this yeah, through or not? I mean, I, I do think that it can be overplayed. And I, I think that there are legitimate reasons for legitimate. Uh, there are reasons not involving the U.S. Uh, that would justify what Putin is doing. I mean, I mentioned one of them, Zelensky is a hardliner. He's very annoying to them. Uh, a second thing, uh, the COVID crisis in Russia is really horrific right now. I mean, they, it's been two months now. And I look at the figures almost every day and they're, you know, 1200 plus Russians are dying every day and there's 30,000 plus new cases every day. And those numbers have not budged one iota in, in this entire fall. So I think that domestically, there are reasons for Putin to do what he's doing. And there's reasons for China to do what they're doing that have nothing to do with the U.S. But, you know, in an era when hundreds, apparently hundreds of people in American cities can self-organize on social media to overwhelm a Neiman Marcus or a Best Buy, it would be silly for us to not think that other countries playing whatever game they're playing on the world stage wouldn't try to self-organize a little bit and take advantage of what is in essence a tactical, if not a strategic opportunity. All right, let's go, let's go full-blown uh, Americocentric approach. And if you're willing, give us an evaluation of how the Biden administration has been handling these, these various crises so far uh, to, to maybe make this a little more acute of a question. Can the Biden administration afford to pick and choose among these crises, or does it have to deal with all of them at the same time? In other words, if the U.S. is really a global superpower, can it really just pick and choose which crisis it's going to deal with at any given time, or does it de facto have to deal with all of them regardless? That it's that's one, that once you're the global superpower, you're obliged by that position to have to deal with all of these at once. My view is part of being a global superpower is acting like a global superpower, which means every part of the world matters. And I say that, and I know that there are critics on the left and the right that would like to see a less engaged. U.S. on the world stage, and they feel that we shouldn't have these burdens, and they feel like there's a way to offshore balance or use other fancy geopolitical terms that basically lessen America's responsibility around the world. My response to them is a lot of the things that we like about America, a lot of the benefits we have as Americans is because we are a global superpower, whether it's trade, commerce, world influence, other things that are really good for Americans are because the U.S. is engaged in the world. Not to mention, I strongly believe that an engaged America is also good for the world in general. And so, yes, I think we have to be able to operate with uh, a dangerous Russia and uh, the risks and threats posed by China at the same time. I, I think that's just part of our obligation as a superpower. And I think we have the capacity to do it. The question is, do we have the will? So I'll, I'll, I'll jump on, I'll, I'll associate myself with most of what Matt said. Uh, I, I agree with a lot of where he was going. Let me, let me highlight three points and, and let's call this Lester the in-progress review. This is, this is not the final grade. Um, so, you know, we're at an eight week semester or whatever. Um, I'll, I'll give three positive marks for AUKUS, the Australian-US-UK alliance that is developing and burgeoning and focusing on China. 
Um, I'll give positive marks for NATO's reaction to the most recent buildup uh, of Russia and Secretary General Stoltenberger coming out very strong. Um, and, you know, we all understand that that alliance was uh, put into some turmoil in the past four or five years. Um, and I will give positive marks for uh, the decision not to send diplomatic um, envoys to the Olympics coming up in China in uh, February, uh, the, the Winter Olympics. So those are three positive remarks. Will they have a long-term impact on these on these crises that we're we're discussing? Uh, multi, you know, multi-faceted, simultaneous issues. Uh, again, in progress review to be determined. But you know, at, at least those th three things I could say are favorable for the administration at this point. I'll just take issue with with Matthew. Uh, I don't really think the U.S. has the capacity to do it any longer. And I think we are just very confused about how or why the circumstances that followed the immediate post-Cold War, uh, post-World War II period have changed. At the end of World War II, we were it. We were the entire world's economy for the most part, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is no longer the case today. And that means that we do not have overwhelming capacity. What was the strategy in the 90s to fight two major wars and then kind of a half war someplace else. Wasn't that the strategy? We can't do that any longer. And, uh, and, and we know it sort of, but are refusing to articulate it, which is part of the willpower issue. And the rest of the world recognizes it very clearly. But they don't want to be the part of the world that the U.S. chooses to fight, right? So yeah, we can only maybe do one, but uh, which one will it be? They don't know for example. So, you know, if having to choose between the Ukraine and China in terms of a strong intervention, which one would you choose if you were a U.S. foreign policy leader? I, I, I just, well, obviously we've got some disagreement. When I talk about the U.S. engagement in the world, I'm also assuming that our alliance network remains. And the U.S. has always had the greatest alliance network uh, since the end of World War II. And while it's frayed in some parts of the world, I still would rather have the U.S. seat than the Russia seat or the China seat, given a choice and given that alliance network. And so I think that puts a real impetus on the part of the U.S. and its diplomatic and national security apparatus to reinvigorate that alliance. And I think also uh, if we think about and, and we'll come on to this in some form or fashion with the next topic, you know, U.S. defense and national security investment today versus what it was when we were in the last Cold War, we're in completely different spaces, strangely. Um, and so I think there's opportunity there to further invest in that. Uh, that would give us greater capacity. Carmen, uh, I want to push you a little bit on your answer because I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you, but then I want to I test the premise a little bit. And, and, it's, and it's this question. You know, we, the, the Biden administration pulled out of Afghanistan. Granted, it was a debacle, but in principle, they pulled out of, they pulled the U.S. out of Afghanistan in order to focus resources and time and effort on, on issues and crises and countries that were more of a direct threat to our national interests, i.e. China uh, and, to some extent, Russia, uh, right? We wanted to, to free up resources to deal with those things. But what if in the process of pulling out of Afghanistan, we actually opened up the window a little bit bigger for those countries to cause trouble for us? That the, the 
move to kind of disengage in this one place actually led to problems getting bigger everywhere else. And I'm not, you know, we were talking about cause and effect before we started this recording, but I'm not saying there's maybe a direct cause and effect here, but is there some sort of uh, kind of metaphysical issue here where, you know, demonstrating that we're willing to pull back in one place means that we're going to be tested in so many more. I, uh, you know, if you read some of the uh, commentary in Taiwan, after the Afghanistan pullout, there are a lot of people in Taiwan, security thinkers, who actually made that point that the U.S. leaving Taiwan, uh, leaving Afghanistan is a really bad example for Taiwan. And I, you know, I, I, I can't help but think that you're right, Lester, that when we show a disinclination to continue a fight, no matter how sound the reason the, you know, the bully will think, well, then they don't want to fight at all. And that tends to be a classic miscalculation of bullies or aggressors, for example. Uh, but nevertheless, we leave ourselves open to that. All right. On that happy note, let's turn to the very upbeat topic of hypersonic missiles, which we have been hearing about a ton in the news recently. Uh, both China and Russia have launched hypersonic missiles to great fanfare. The U.S. also has the technology, but we may be three or four years behind our competitors here. Now it appears that China may have launched another weapon from the hypersonic missile while it was traveling at speed, 3,700 miles an hour or whatever crazy speed it was going, uh, a, a weapon that landed in the sea. American experts are supposedly dumbfounded by this capability. We read in the press. Uh, it does seem like an amazing achievement. Carmen going to go to you first. Missiles are scary. Big adversary nations with bigger weapons than us are scary. What does all of this mean for the United States? Well, I think it means that uh, we have to, again, I don't want to sound, I'm not sure exactly how you would describe my, my philosophical position, except to say that I'm a realist, right? That the uh, U.S. benefited for 50 plus years for from a overwhelming technological superiority. I remember once when I asked a group of analysts at an agency that I used to work at, well, what will happen when China develops technologies that are superior to us? And their answer was, well, that will never happen. And of course, I immediately knew they had to be dead wrong because when anybody says anything like that, they're not thinking and the assumptions are just, you know, protruding out like you know, broken bones protruding out of a body, right? So here we are now uh, with a, a kind of a, uh, almost a zero-sum game to the world. You know, we still are carrying that either, you know, we win or we lose and there's no middle ground. And now people are developing these weapons, apparently beating us to actual implementation before we do. And I think that used to be an American strength, right? Theoretically, other countries might have tremendous uh, uh, breakthroughs, but they, you know, we had the industrial capacity to really develop it at scale. And I think, you know, that's kind of the uh, always not well appreciate sto appreciated story of China's development is that, you know, sure, they're selling a lot of stuff here and 
and lots of uh, appliances and things that sell at Walmart, but at the same time, they're developing industrial capacity to build things at a scale that is necessary if you're going to compete with the U.S. So I think, yeah, I think it's very scary. And I think that um, we, we really have to, you know, I don't know that there's going to be a new arms control regime. And that's, that's the way the world has responded to every other military breakthrough. But I don't know that this world is interested in that anymore. I don't have any, I don't have any answers to that. Uh, I mean, one of them would be like to increase defense spending. We have a huge missile gap. Um, I think that I think that our approach to defense spending and defense strategy suffers from us not really understanding the world as it is emerging. And um, I don't have the answers, but I think we're going to have to be a lot smarter at picking priorities and hedging our bets than we have been in the past. Matthew, is there in fact a hypersonic missile gap? Is this an American failure? And if so, who is responsible? Uh, Well, it appears to be. Uh, You know, our top generals are saying this has spooked them. This is something new. Um, So I think it's a failure. Who's responsible? You know, these these weapons aren't developed overnight. So we can't say it was the Biden administration. Probably can't say it was the Trump administration. Probably can't say it was, uh, you know, the Obama administration. But we could probably say in some part it's all three or four, however long the cycles are to develop this weaponry. I think the other failure here is the one I alluded to earlier, which is just our overall spend. And I know spend is not a proxy for effectiveness always, but it certainly is a starting point. I mean, if we look at percentage of GDP dedicated to national defense during the Reagan buildup of the 80s when we were in a real Cold War. It was about 6% on any given year. Uh, these days, and when I say these days, the last couple of years, we've been running at 3.5% GDP, which is about the same as it was in the late 90s when we were supposedly this unipolar power. So to Carmen's point, there's a tremendous disconnect in terms of how we spend our resources versus the threat matrix we're facing. And I think we're completely out of whack in that regard. And so I'm just alarmed by the seeming sort of cruise control our policymakers seem to be on that. Well, we'll just do 3% of GDP every year, and maybe the defense budget will go up incrementally 2% or down 2%, and it doesn't really matter. Um, And I just think that's where the disconnect is, and that's how you see gaps like this, uh, you know, creep out. Now, what, what, what I will say is I'm hopeful that America's typical track record, which is we screw everything up at the beginning, we fall behind, and then we catch up fast, which is what happened with Sputnik, which is what happened with all sorts of situations, holds true this time. I just, I'd like to see more evidence to give me that comfort. You were talking about my my academic uh, life there for a second. Uh, Fail early, then recover later. (laughs) Uh, Rob, let me bounce this theory off of you. I'm a old-fashioned, compromising Republican person. I see the Democrats uh, demanding all of this domestic spending, uh, $3 trillion worth. If I were, I think if I were a member of Congress or, uh, or directly involved somehow, I'd say, sure, we'll give you some of that, but you give us equal amount of increased defense spending. I'd go, I'd go big government on both sides. We'll give you childcare. You'll give us six more aircraft carrier groups or whatever it is, you know, hypersonic missiles plus ultra hypersonic missiles. Um, you know, I would, I would go for the let's do dollar for dollar deal is, uh, 
Why isn't that happening? Why isn't this a Sputnik moment? Why isn't there a groundswell of concern among American policymakers, frankly, in both parties, over a peer competitor or near peer competitor getting a leg up, up, up on us on a pretty key technology, missiles? This is not, not, this is not good. Why, isn't, why, isn't, why aren't we seeing more action from people on the Hill and the administration? You know, that's that's a really good question, Lester. And I'm with you as, you know, I, I take the radical centrist approach and say there's got to be a compromise on both of these. You can't have all of the domestic spending we're talking about. And and I'll get into this in my what I'm watching in the next week uh, comments later um, and, and then neglect defense because there's so much going on in the world and we rely on our defense industry and our defense apparatus uh, to protect us and keep us safe. Uh, I I would applaud that. And I think it's happening below the tweet level and below the uh, breaking news, which it, everything nowadays on cable news is breaking uh, level. I, I think there are rational and reasonable people on both sides of the aisle who are trying to find that compromise. But the social generation, um, it, the, the social meme comes from those who are on the more radical ends of both parties. Uh, so yes, you're going to hear more about all of the domestic spending from the likes of AOC and the in the and the squad. Um, and you're going to hear more hawkish comments from the likes of um, you know Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz types, uh, and, and hopefully there are people in the middle. Let's call them the Jack Reeds and the the Mike Gallagher's of the world, and and uh, you know Kirsten Cinemas and and others who are working to find that middle ground um, where we where we can say yes that. We now have a definable existential threat that we have lacked for the past 25, 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union, and certainly since we we put a cap on um, international terrorism wreaking havoc here in the states. So it, it, it I mean, it's uh, to me, it's it's good to note that we were first in hypersonics, right? We were the first to ever break the the sound barrier and the hypersonic barrier, which is Mach three plus. Um, we did that. What scares the crap out of me about this latest report is that, in effect, the Chinese have demonstrated in what, what we would call in the nuclear world, MIRVs, multiple entry, uh, multiple reentry vehicles. They've is essentially demonstrated multiple reentry, steerable, guidable, and, and movable vehicles uh, off of one hypersonic missile. So instead of one missile launch and one one touchdown, one splash, one kill. Uh, you're likely to have multiple kills off of that one launch. And that's scary when it comes to things like our own missile defense and our own, you know, preparedness for that. We should be matching that stride for stride and outpacing it any way that we can. Um, and, and, you know, some of the, the the stuff that's caught up in the Build Back Better plan can be set to the side for a little bit longer. Matthew, Carmen, any concerns about uh, the arms race that Rob is launching here? Well, I do agree with Rob that the MIRV capability is particularly dangerous. And if they are anywhere close to having that deployable as a uh, a viable uh, weapon in an engagement over Taiwan, I think that is pretty uh, damning right there. Yeah, I I agree with both Carmen and Rob. I I think this is a crisis. And I also think there's a lesson to be learned here when it comes to bureaucracy, because one of the Achilles heels of the defense establishment has been the procurement process. 
and the way they go about obtaining the arms we need to defend the country. And if we look at the changes that were made in the ramp up of getting vaccines out to people and how the bureaucracy was sort of, I don't want to say it was overridden, but it was certainly streamlined to get drugs approved quickly because we were facing an imminent crisis because people's lives are on the line. I think there are some lessons to be drawn in terms of how does the defense and national security establishment do what it does and what kind of bureaucratic hurdles could we start clearing out of the way so that we can catch up quickly and not just catch up, but overtake as, as Rob rightly suggested. So who was it, remind me, who said recently that the Pentagon's management bureaucratic process was just as great a threat to U.S. national security as anything else. Somebody actually, I think, testified to Congress to that effect. And I think that that's absolutely true. I mean, whether we're spending 3% or 6%, we are spending enough to do a better job than we are doing now. And Lester, I just wanted to applaud you for your endorsement of modern monetary theory. And But I think you're absolutely right. In a better political climate, where both parties were interested in just success for the United States rather than scoring points, that's exactly what would be occurring. Um, amen. All right, let's turn to our, the issues that we're following uh, that are not on the front page. I will go ahead and go first. The issue I'm tracking is a report Uh, in a foreign paper that a Chinese loan to Uganda, which had gone unpaid, resulted in Uganda turning over its famous airport in Entebbe, which is uh, just about an hour from the capital of Kampala, its international airport in Entebbe, over to Chinese control. Uh, And there was was a lot of fanfare about this. It's no doubt going to get a ton of attention on the Hill from the China Hawks uh, and like crowds. Both Notably, both uh, the Xi administration in China and the Museveni uh, regime in Uganda have denied this report. Frankly, I don't trust either one of them. It does seem like something uh, sinister is afoot here with the Belt and Road Initiative. It should be, uh, we talked about a kind of a Sputnik moment. There should be a Sputnik moment for, for aid programs in the U.S. China is directly undermining the work our good aid workers are doing in developing countries around the world. It's, it is tragedy and it is a threat to our values and interests, and we need to take it more seriously. Matthew, go ahead. I, I don't know that this qualifies as something that's not on the front page. I think it just depends on what publication you're looking at. But I am um, very closely tracking the lira crisis, which, of course, is the currency in Turkey. Um, you have Erdogan, who is uh, essentially a dictator. Um, and you have someone that clearly has no concept of how the fundamentals of economics work. And that you could say, well, that's fine. He's got wacky views on economics. The fact is that it affects millions and millions of people in Turkey, but it also creates ripples across that entire region. Uh, that could be very detrimental to the Middle East, to Southern Europe and other areas. And so, um, I, and, and not to mention the fact that it, it further sets Turkey backwards from an economic development perspective, which by all rights, Turkey should be a thriving uh, economic engine for that region of the world. And it's simply not. Uh, and so uh, we've got a paranoid dictator who's got very wacko theories on the economy. And I think it's just going to cause trouble in that part of the world. And so I, I'm keeping a close eye on that one. Carmen. I'll jump in and again, 
people are thinking about this, but just dismissing it as kind of a People magazine type item. But I, I, I think about the looming death of Queen Elizabeth. She's been very old for a long time. And recently, <laughs> she has uh, uh, clearly not been feeling well. And I think uh, our erstwhile ally, the United Kingdom, Great Britain, is reeling a bit from Brexit and uh, the implications of a no-deal Brexit, essentially. And I think the death of Queen Elizabeth and what's likely to be a little bit of, a, of an uncertain period in terms of succession, or at least perhaps unpopular succession, I think that's going to affect the emotional stability of uh, Great Britain. And I think it's worth looking at. And if I can just add one other uh, perhaps more serious point, although I am serious about the Queen Elizabeth point, we're going to have another full year of COVID with significant deaths around the world. And I keep looking for, to return to economics, somebody talking about what the implications of this kind of excess morbidity will be for world economic growth for years to come. And there's, you know, it's not just going to be one more year, I think, of this uh, excess morbidity. I think it's going to be two, three, four years of economic uncertainty. And I, I'd like to see more of that being discussed. Rob. So I'm going to cheat here a little, Lester. This one is actually on the front pages, but it's not tied to national security directly. So bear with me. Tree equity, $3 billion in the Build Back Better plan that just came out of the house for tree equity. Uh, whatever that means, I don't know. But that uh, radical center we talked about a few moments ago, I would like to see some of that reallocated, reappropriated towards the grand issues we just discussed, industrial capacity, buy another B-22 Raider with that, or half of it, fund another Columbia-class boomer, uh, develop hypersonics, and jump ahead of the, our adversaries in that field. It doesn't take the entire $3 billion. You can still buy some trees and plant them in the desert of Arizona if you want to. But some of that money needs to be going to the very real existential national security threats that we just discussed for the past hour. Rob, you know, it's uh, it's basically Christmas season now. People like Christmas trees and you're coming out against trees in the Christmas right, season. That's fine. Coming That's out your call. Against okay. a federalization of Christmas trees. I want it block granted to the local level <laughs> so that people can get the trees with the least amount of bureaucracy. Marvelous. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonMatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Bridget Neff-Hickman for research assistance, and Ruth Joe for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Mm -hmm.